0: The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. So we're we're thankful to be able to come back this evening to our study of church history. And I do appreciate that there are uh, many of you have said that you find this to be a good study and you find it to be an interesting one. And uh, so that somewhat surprises me, not, not that it's, it's not a good subject, but I know that there are a lot of people that just really don't care anything at all about history. They don't care about studying history. Uh, when it comes to the history of the church, I actually find it to be an enthralling subject because one of the things that i want to find out is how that after 2000 years of church history that the doctrines that we believe how did they come down to us in the same form as they were originally given how do we know that we're not just totally off the wall here somewhere and we're not preaching something that the disciples didn't actually teach or this wasn't what they thought about things and we're and all these uh, different doctrines that we confront on a daily basis, how is it that those things haven't actually replaced what was the true doctrines of the church? And as we study this, we find this remarkable consistency over 2,000 years of church history that people were believing the same things that we believe. And I find that to be a very interesting thing. Uh, A few weeks ago, I picked up a history book, one of the books that I have in my office, and... It is a uh, popular textbook on church history. In fact, it's one that's used in many Christian universities. And there are some Baptist colleges that use this as well. And the author of this book made this statement in the introduction. He said, One who has studied the history of the church will never again be denominationally provincial. He will sense the unity of the true body of Christ throughout the ages. And then that same author goes on and he places the church right into the middle of catholicism and then he says that the church had not been able to work out its body of dogma and i'll tell you that i find that statement to be manifestly false and i find it to be offensive and i find it to be against the words that jesus said in matthew 16:18 and what we did never needed to do as Christians, as the Church of the Lord Jesus Christ, was to work out our body of dogma. We already had that. It's called the New Testament. And that's what we believe. We find our beliefs in the New Testament. So the New Testament body of dogma has been adhered to by true churches throughout history, while we certainly do know that the Roman Catholic Church has taken 1,200 years or more to hammer out their body of dogma and it changes on a daily basis. So the only thing that we find consistent about Roman Catholicism is that it consistently is wrong on the doctrines of Christ, and they consistently try to eradicate those who believe the truth. But what we believe has been absolutely consistent down through the ages, and we find the record of that in history. We find it in these many different groups that... Uh, believe the true gospel of Jesus Christ. So I'm weary when I pick up these books that talk about the faithfulness and the tenacity of the church fathers to try and find the principles that they were going to teach and to live by. We don't need to do that. We go to the New Testament and we go to the New Testament alone and it was complete at the end of the first century and when it was complete, the whole body of Christian faith was complete. And this is the faith that Jude says was once delivered to the saints. Well, with that thought in mind, I want to return to the place that we left off last time. And I know that's a long time ago. I guess it's three or four weeks since we've talked about this. But we were discussing the fourth period of church history, which is the Middle Ages. And we were talking about Baptists in the Middle Ages and Baptists that were fighting for their lives, who were Uh, against those still trying to figure out their body of dogma. And that consistency of the true church has been seen in these many different groups that we've talked about going under different names. And as I said, the only perfect consistency that we find in Roman Catholicism is the efforts to exterminate those who are teaching the truth. Now, in the last lesson... We, we were talking about Baptists in the period. That's C on your listening sheet. And I know that's kind of confusing tonight, the numbering and all of that. But I'm just trying to pick up the outline where we left off. So we were talking about C, the Baptists in the period. And yet we know that they weren't called Baptists at this time. But they were known as other, by other names. But the doctrine that they held to, that's the same as the doctrine that we have today. So we talked about uh, these groups. We talked about the Paulicians. Uh, That was the name that was used in the 7th to the 16th centuries. And there were churches that were going under uh, this name all over Europe. Uh, They stood against the ecclesiasticism of Rome. They stood against the sacerdotal system that Rome taught. They rejected infant baptism and baptismal regeneration. They rejected the authority of the Pope and on and on it goes. They were essentially rejectors of the whole system of Roman Catholicism. And these people were vigorously persecuted, and yet they weren't eradicated. All they did was to transition into other names by which they were called in other parts of of Europe and and, uh, around Asia Minor. Now, next we discuss the Waldenses, and this is the largest group of that time, and this is a group that we know quite well because they've left many of their writings behind. And they were teaching many of the doctrines of the Reformation before the Reformation ever came. They popularized, or the doctrines that they were teaching, rather, were popularized during the Protestant Reformation. And so these were people that were still preaching the doctrines of grace, just as we do in this church. And these people are proof that Luther and Calvin and the other Reformers were not responsible for that systematic theology that we know today as the doctrines of grace. I know there are many who claim that Luther and Calvin originated those or, or Augustine originated those, but they, but they didn't. These people known as the Waldenses were already teaching and believing those things. So the Waldenses had taken those doctrines out of the New Testament hundreds of years before, uh, that is, hundreds of years before the Reformers were ever heard of. And then those that were involved in the Inquisition which, of course, is the Roman Catholic Church, uh, those who were charged with finding these people and taking them out and persecuting them, they acknowledged, these inquisitors acknowledged the existence of these people that are known as the Waldenses as far back as the 3rd century. And they also said that these were people that were successors to the Christians that were in the New Testament. And these are believers that translated the Bible into their own language, which, of course, Rome would never do. They, they denied the, the Roman mass. They believed in salvation by grace. They believed in believer's baptism. During the Reformation, many of these were assimilated into the Reformation, and uh, they became their own denomination. But there were others that still held on to their apostolic roots, and they were Baptists just like we are Baptists today. And when the name Baptist was popularized in the 17th and the 18th centuries, they took the name Baptist and became a part of that. Now, I want to move on to another group that shows up during this time. And this group is called the Bogomilli. Very strange name, but they're the Bogomil, And they're found in the 9th to the 16th centuries. Uh, at this time, there were believers that were scattered all over Europe and Asia and Africa. Uh, known uh, by different names in different areas. But this particular group, that's called the Bogomili were concentrated in the Balkan Peninsula. Uh, Those are countries like Armenia, Bosnia, and, and Bulgaria. Now, the name is a little bit strange, but it roughly translates into this. It's people who are the friends of God. These aren't people that appeared out of the blue, because what you never have, you never have this the church arising out of nothing and suddenly appearing in some particular area because the church doesn't start itself. But these this is a group that had a connection to the, to the New Testament times and they find their connection in that first group that we talked about just a moment ago, the Paulicians. Because as the Paulicians were persecuted and driven out of the places where they lived, they migrated uh, or went into... Is that the right word to use, migrated? Immigrated, Is migrated all right? Whatever. You understand what I mean. Uh, they moved from where they lived and they went into these different areas of the Balkan uh, Peninsula. That happened in the 9th and the 10th centuries. They were being persecuted by Roman Catholics and so trying to escape the tyranny of Roman Catholicism, they just moved on over into the Balkans. And when they did that, they couldn't have been in a worse place because now they were situated between two great empires. On the east, you have the Byzantine Empire. That's the uh, Orthodox Church. That's the eastern block of uh, Catholicism. And so they were persecuted on the east by the Byzantine Empire. And then on the west, they were persecuted, of course, by Roman Catholicism. So it was a very bad place to be. And they were vigorously persecuted. And yet as they were persecuted, they continued to grow. And so in 1291, Pope Nicholas IV called for a purge of Bosnia. Now that sounds eerily similar to things that happen in modern times, doesn't it? Only here we're not talking about an ethnic cleansing. We're speaking of a religious cleansing as the Pope sent his troops in to try and destroy the Bogomili in that area of the Balkans. Now, interestingly enough, in the 14th century, what the Bogomili did was to join forces with the Turks. Now, the Turks of the, I guess, the Ottoman Empire, the Turks would have been Muslims, of course. And what they did by combining their forces with the Turks, they were able to drive... Uh, the Roman Catholics out of that particular area to to break the control of the Roman Catholic Church, and what the Muslims actually did was to treat them better than these people that are called Christians. That is Roman Catholics. Now, another interesting fact about the Bogomili is how that they interacted and they traveled freely among other Christian groups. Uh, some of them moved on over into Western Europe. And when they did that, they were assimilated into the other groups that we've talked about. They joined up forces with the Waldenses, and then also with another group that's called the Albigenses. And we're going to talk about them in just a moment, so don't worry about writing that down. We'll get to it in just a minute. But let me quote to you from E.H. Broadbent who said their relations with the older churches in Armenia and Asia Minor, with the Albigenses of France, Waldensis and others in Italy, and Hussites in Bohemia, show that there was a common ground of faith and practice which united them all. They formed a link connecting the primitive churches of the Taurus Mountains of Asia Minor with similar ones in the Alps of Italy and France." And that's a significant statement because we've already talked about this. Believers who were in the Taurus Mountains. And we know that those were true believers because that's the area where Paul started churches in the New Testament that we know there as Galatia. And so those believers that were in Galatia, they they mixed with these people and they were able to do that because their doctrines were the same. These aren't people that are trying to work out a body of dogma. These aren't people that have many different ideas about many different doctrines, but rather they were able to mix freely because they believe the same things that have been taught in the New Testament, and so they're already in agreement with New Testament teachings. And the consistency of that doctrine is very important because they were accused of many heresies just like those before them. They were accused of many heresies. Now, here's the kind of thing and, that happens in the way that it works out. Because they denied the Pope, they were claimed to be devil worshipers. Because they refused to believe in the presence of Christ in the Eucharist, they were claimed to be Arians. I don't know if you know what Arians are, but in the fourth century, there was a man by the name of Arius, who was a Roman Catholic monk, who denied the deity of Christ, and he denied the Trinity. And so they said that these, these people also denied the deity and the humanity of Christ. They were accused of anarchy because they denied the right of civil magistrates to uh, force people in matters of religious conscience now, of course, none of those accusations are accurate. These are just simply people that are holding on to the very same doctrines that have been taught by the Waldenses and the other groups that we've spoken about. Now, I've already said that the Waldenses took them in. They, they mixed with the Waldensies. Now, we could never imagine knowing what the Waldensies believe because we have their writings. We could never imagine that they would have accepted these people in if they were devil worshippers. We would never expect that the Waldensies would receive these people into fellowship if they didn't believe in the deity of Christ, if they didn't affirm the Trinity. And so we don't really have to go through all the list of the things that they believe. By the very fact that they were able to mix in with the Waldensians, shows us that they, again, are not trying to figure out their dogma. They know exactly what they believe. They agree on New Testament principles. And because they believe the New Testament, they're persecuted and they're killed for this. Now, despite that terrible persecution, here you have these people situated between two empires, persecuted from both sides, and yet in the 12th century, the numbers of them were as many as 2 million. L.P. Brockett wrote, among these, that is, historians on the Bulgarians, I have found often in unexpected quarters the most conclusive evidence that these sects were all, during their earlier history, Baptist. Not only in their views of subjects of baptism and the Lord's Supper, but in their opposition to pedobaptism. baptism And if you don't know what that means, it simply means infant Baptism. Uh, to a church hierarchy, their their opposition to pedobaptism, to a church hierarchy, and to any worship of the Virgin Mary or the saints, and in their adherence to church independence and freedom of conscience in religious worship. In short, the conclusion has forced itself upon me, in these Christians of Bosnia, Bulgaria, and Armenia, we have a succession of Christian churches, New Testament churches, and Baptist churches... And that as early as the 12th century, these churches numbered a converted, believing membership as large as that of the Baptists throughout the world today. Now for him, the world today was the 19th century. And so I I just find it totally remarkable that historians like the one I quoted from who wrote the book uh, uh, of history that the universities use, I find it incredible that they would take the church and place it into the middle of Roman Catholicism and say this was the church in the Middle Ages. And so there you have an utterly corrupt church that has no gospel. Here you have a church that, that, that claims that Christ started it when they believe all of these heresies, while at the same time you have literally multi-millions of people that were holding on to the same doctrines as Christ and the apostles. So how do you miss that? As an historian, how do you miss that? And well, the only way that you can, I think, is you must have a bias. You have to have a bias against the people that were really teaching the truth, and you must go along with Protestantism, and you must go along with Catholicism, because you can't miss this. How can you claim that the Roman Catholic Church represents the Church of Christ when you have true believers that are already there existing apart from them? And there are not 10 of them, or 15, or 100, or 1,000. There are literally millions of these people all across Europe. Well, we go on further and we come to another group that in that time actually outnumbered Roman Catholics in their area. And this was the Albigenses. The Albigenses. They're in the 10th to the 16th centuries, And I've actually mentioned these people before. The name uh, doesn't appear until the 12th century. But these are the same people that were in the same area that were known as the Valdois. And also known, the Valdois is another name for the Waldenses. So the name is actually a geographical name. They're named according to the place where they lived. And where they lived was in the Pyrenees Mountains and towns that were close to that. Towns like uh, Toulouse in France and the town of Albi. And that's actually, uh, those of you that know uh, Gabrielle and Armand, our friends that are here on Sunday morning, they're from that particular area, and so this this is a geographical name, and these people had lived in that area for hundreds of years. In fact, they lived there uh, when the uh, when Christians went into Gaul, and then Gaul, of course, is France. What Gaul, France was known as Gaul back in the times of the Roman Empire. And in 64 AD, these were people that, that moved into that particular area. And so when you, when you read about the Apostle Paul, and, and he's preaching to converts in Rome, he's making those converts, the people that go out from Rome, they went into places like this, and, and Albi is one of the places where they went. And we also know, uh, you remember the Novations that we talked about, one of the very earliest groups, one of the very earliest names? We also know that there were novations that lived in that area. So we're talking here about New Testament Christians. These are people that believe the truth, and we have no doubt at all that these are true believers. Now, what happens is that, and we know this very well, that when the gospel is preached, the, the word of God doesn't return void. Wherever you preach the gospel, people are going to be saved, and there were many people that were saved in these areas. And the fruits of the gospel is that there were, the numbers were multiplying greatly. And in the ra- region around Albi, uh, the numbers of them became such a major concern to the Catholic Church that in the 12th century they did outnumber Catholics in that area. And so here's what happened. In the 12th century, Pope Innocent III, who was by no means innocent of anything, uh, Pope Innocent III started a crusade against them, and what he did was to promise the king of France that he would give him his papal blessings and that he would give him rewards if he would exterminate these Baptists that were living in the area of Albi. Now, let me give you an idea just by comparison of the effort that was made against these, these ancient Christians. In the United States today, the United States Army... Is reducing, it's in the process of reducing its numbers to get down to about 440,000 active personnel in the Army. That means that the most powerful nation in all of the world will have a standing army of about 440,000 men and women. Now take a guess at how many people the Roman Catholics sent to exterminate these believers in Albi. There were actually 500,000 crusaders that were sent into that area to try and kill these Baptists. So we're talking about an army that is larger than the army of the United States of America. And they went into that area... And they started killing them. And over a period of of uh, 20 years, there were 200,000 that were killed. In one city alone, there were 60,000 that were killed at one time. And before all of it was over, there were 1 million Albigensis that were dead. Now, folks, we're not talking here about a war to fight against bloodthirsty barbarians. We're not talking about... Somebody who might come in and rape and murder your wives and kill your children. We're not talking about people that would force you into labor camps like communists would do. And we're not even talking about Muslims who would come and blow you up or cut your head off with a sword. We're speaking here of peace-loving Christians. And you know the reason that the Roman Catholics wanted to kill them? Why they murdered one million Albigenses? Well, here are the charges against them. They wouldn't baptize babies. They wouldn't bow to the Pope. They wouldn't take the Mass. And do you know the character of these people that were so brutally murdered by Catholicism and massacred? Their character was that they were strictly moral people. That they started schools. They began charitable institutions and they supported those institutions. And in the period of the Dark Ages, which was brought on by the insanity of Roman Catholicism, it was during that time that the Albigenses actually sought to bring a higher order of civilization to their people. And that's actually what they did. Despite what Roman Catholicism was doing, trying to keep people in the dark, what they were doing was bringing in literature and they were bringing in new science. They were actually responsible for the enlightenment of Europe. So Rome is trying to hold people back, and the Albigenses were bringing people into into a fully enlightened civilization. And did you know this? That that is always the byproduct of the gospel of Jesus Christ. There's always enlightenment that comes out of the gospel of Christ. It picks up everything socially and, of course, morally, religiously. That's what the gospel does. Well, what did they believe? Well, William Jones, who is not a Baptist historian, but he is one of the most respected of all church historians, said that they held to a regenerated church membership. They opposed the interference of civil magistrates in church affairs. They taught that when a person was truly converted, that he would show it by a life of good works. They said that it's not right to persecute anybody, no matter what they believe. They denied the sacraments as a means of salvation. They held on to the New Testament view of the Lord's Supper and of baptism. So again, these are people that are pretty much settled in their dogma, and that's because the New Testament settled that for them long ago. And so when you see all these so-called church councils that take place in history, and you'll read that, of uh, You pick up your secular history books. You'll always see the church councils that took place from time to time. Those are Roman Catholic councils, of course, and they had those councils so they could shore up the things that they believed. They were unsure of what they believe, and so they had to argue about what is it that we're going to believe. Baptists never held church councils. We don't have to make decisions about... What, we, what we're going to believe. What we've always done is we've gone to the New Testament and if we can find it there, we believe it. And if it's not there, we don't believe it. It's as simple as that. Now, there's other groups that appeared at that time and I'm not going to go into detail about each of those. Uh, we find the same doctrines and the same persecutions. We find the same believers. They have different names, but they all have the very same story. There are people that were in the Northern Alps uh, or across the Alps from the Albigensis and the Waldensis. Uh, these are people, I'll just throw out one name for you, like the Paterines. And they were actually too close to home for Rome, being there in northern Italy. They had the same doctrines as the others. They had the same catechisms as the others. They even had Christian schools. They had support that was coming in from other parts of Europe for their schools. And that just showed you there was this common support group that's held together by one thing and that is the cohesiveness of their doctrine and again they're existing outside of roman catholicism so these aren't people that are splintered off into many different doctrines and this is plainly the truth that you don't have to be factional when you have one book to go to and only one book And when you make that your rule of faith and practice, you don't have to have all the factions and you don't have to have new canon laws that are made to rule everybody. Well, let's move on now and let's see what was happening in one of our favorite places. What was Britain doing in the Middle Ages? So number five in your list is British Christianity. What about them during the Middle Ages? Well, we've already studied, and we know this, that Patrick was preaching there in the 5th century, and we know that there was nothing Catholic about his doctrine. Patrick had started 300 churches throughout the British Isles. They weren't Catholic, and so what do you think Catholics wanted them to be? They're not Catholic, so what do Catholics want them to be? Well, they want them to be Catholics. Now, the the gospel had already been preached in England as early as 63 A.D., but along in the 6th century, the Roman Catholics came to Britain... And that's because they thought these are people that needed to be converted. Well, why do you need to convert people that, that received New Testament Christianity right at the time of the New Testament? Why do you need to convert them? Well, there's only one reason you have to convert them, and that is because they don't believe what you believe. And so the Roman Catholics went there to try to switch them over, to try to convert them from their apostasy, their so-called apostasy. And folks, this is just a matter of record. It's Not something I made up. They, they went there, and, and you wonder, why did they have to evangelize Christians? And they had to because those people that were in Britain did not teach what Roman Catholics taught. The, the British Christians knew nothing at all about ecclesiastical forms of church government. The churches there had been operating independently for hundreds of years, and they owed no allegiance to anyone but God. They certainly didn't know. Oh, allegiance to the Pope. The Pope is not Christ. He doesn't speak for Christ. So they weren't ready to come under the power of the Pope. And so Christians in Europe actually survived without help from the Pope longer than anyone else that was in Europe. And you might want to underline the word survived because that's what they did. They had to survive the Pope and all that he did against them. And these are primitive christians that started out from the very beginning there 63 AD right close to the time of Christ certainly in the time of the apostles and they held out there all the way in to the time of the protestant reformation so in 596 the pope sent augustine to britain to try to persuade british christians to join up with them now there's one thing that i've told you throughout this study it's about the practice of the Roman Catholics in the area of pragmatism. They are very, they are a very pragmatic religion, and so they thrive on compromise. They go into places where people may not believe like they believe, but if they can get them to acquiesce to certain principles, they're willing to forego all the other things that they do, and so. Roman Catholicism increases and so that's why you can even find this in Catholicism you can go uh, for instance into uh, the Caribbean area and places like that even into Mexico and you can find their voodoo as a part of Roman Catholicism but the British Christians of course they're nothing like Roman Catholics. so I want you to listen to what Augustine told them when he consulted with the leaders of Christianity that were there and then what those Christians told him Now, first, let me give you what Augustine said, then I'll give you the reply. Here's Augustine. He said, You act, in many particulars, contrary to our custom, or rather the custom of the universal church, and yet, if you will comply with me in these three points, points—viz., to keep Easter at the due time, to administer baptism by which we are born again to God according to the custom of the Holy Roman Apostolic Church, and jointly with us preach the word of God to the English nation, we will readily tolerate the other things you do, though contrary to our custom. And this is what the British Christians said. They answered that they would do none of those things, that they would not receive him as their archbishop, for they alleged among themselves, if he would not rise up to us, now much more will he condemn us as of no worth if we begin to be under his subjection. So let me put the last part of that quote in my own words. They told Augustine to go fish. Now, these are people that are different from Catholics in these doctrines. They don't baptize babies. They certainly don't believe that baptism saves anybody like Rome does. They're not pagans like Roman Catholics. And so they weren't about to join up with them to preach Rome's perversion of the Word of God. Now l- let me just add this in here that if, what we need is more Christians today who are just like those ancient British Christians who refused the overtures of Roman Catholicism. Now what we have are evangelicals today and even some who claim fundamentalism that will walk up to the Pope and they will throw his arms around him, uh, their arms around him, and they will kiss his ring, and they are in love with Pope Francis. And while they do that, the blood of the martyrs scream out, have nothing at all to do with these antichrists. This is what the martyrs of Revelation 6 said. Say, and they will say, And when he had opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of them that were slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. And they cried with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, dost thou not judge and avenge our blood on them that dwell on the earth? Now, I'll tell you what the martyrs would never do. They would never hold hands with Roman Catholics in any common cause. You don't reach out and touch the guy who will gouge your eyes out and it will cut off your fingers and your toes and pull out your tongue and stretch you and tear off your limbs, tear them completely off of your body. You don't reach out and touch that guy. And yet, what do these senseless evangelicals do today? Well, a few years ago, there was a cord, an accord that was signed between Catholics and evangelicals called the ECT. Evangelicals and Catholics together. And what these evangelicals said, we will join up with Roman Catholics for the propagation of the gospel. When the gospel that Rome teaches is a perverted gospel, they locked arms with the Pope, a man who preaches a false gospel that sends people to hell. And then there was not long ago another one of these called the Manhattan Declaration, and the same evangelicals that signed the ECT came along and they signed the Manhattan Declaration, and they added some others, even some who are Baptist signed this particular agreement in which they said that they would assist the Roman Catholics on human rights issues such as abortion. Now imagine that, that you would sign up with the most bloodthirsty of all people on the planet for human rights. Ask one million Albigensis about human rights. Well, what about the Roman Catholic Church? Well, they're headed for another inquisition, They've not changed. The blood of the martyrs are still on their hands, and it will be again when Christ returns. The world will be plunged into the tribulation, and then Roman Catholicism will return to power, and millions of people will die because of it. Now, let's go back to those British Christians. What do you think happened when these British Christians told Augustine to stick the pope in in his ear? What do you think happened? Well, these are, these are Baptists that won't sign up. I mean, as soon as you sign up with Rome on anything, that's a fast track to the destruction of the gospel of Christ. So we don't go to their churches. I, I don't attend their churches. I, I don't pray in their venues. I, I don't call what they do Christian because I know that our forefathers would never call that the faith of Christ. And so what happened to the British Christians? Well, Augustine didn't pack up and go home. That's not the way that Rome operates. And so what Augustine did was to threaten them, and then when they still wouldn't comply, he raised an army to persecute them, and then he butchered them, and many of them fled to Wales, where they hid out in the mountains. Now, I'll tell you something. Whenever you see a mountain, think of poor, persecuted Christians, because that's where we usually end up when Roman Catholics come to town. This is what Jesus told the Jews... Matthew 24, then let them which be in Judea flee unto the mountains. And, and that's when the Antichrist, this is talking about the tribulation time, and this is when the Antichrist, who is aided by the apostate Roman Catholic Church, comes. And in the book of Hebrews, it speaks of people that are killed for the faith. Notice what it says about them. It says they were stoned, They were sawn asunder, were tempted, were slain with the sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered in deserts and in mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. Now, thank God for mountains and valleys because he made a place for persecuted Christians to hide. But you know there's coming a day when God's people are not going to have to hide any longer. Those martyrs in Revelation 6 are going to have their vengeance. Well, these are Christians that would not surrender, so they did flee to the mountains of Wales, and thus they preserved the true church in Britain. This is what David Benedict, who's a great historian, wrote. Baptist historians in England contend that the first British Christians were Baptist and that they maintained Baptist principles until the coming of Austin, or that is Augustine. From the coming of Austin, the church in this island was divided into two parts, the old and the new. The old or Baptist church maintained the original principles. Now, I could go on with several other quotes, but I think that suffices. Before the Protestant Reformation, there were people in the mountains and the valleys of Wales that resisted all attempts by Roman Catholics to either convert them or to destroy them. Now, sometimes as you're looking through history, it's difficult to find pastors and churches in some of these areas. But this is not a difficult thing to find with Britain. In fact, there are records of pastors there. There are locations of churches that are given. These are places that are known. Now, in the 9th and the 10th centuries, the Pope was still issuing commands for British Christians to practice infant baptism. So here you have 500 years after Augustine, you still have people that are resisting. These Christians had still not signed an ECT agreement. So, we were there before Catholics. Certainly, Baptists were there before the Reformation. The Quaker William Barclay wrote... The rise of Anabaptists took place prior to the foundation of the Church of England. Now, we're close on time here. It's time for us to quit. And and um, um, I don't have time to talk about this next group. Uh, this group will actually take us... Uh, to the latter part of the Middle Ages, and now we're getting very close to the Protestant Reformation. And what I'd like to do is as is, is I really want to talk to you about some significant events and significant people in the Reformation and those leading up to the Reformation. I, I'm talking here about pre-Reformation, those who helped to get the Reformation started. And when the Reformation came, uh, many Baptists welcomed that it was a good thing in some ways, but then it became very harmful because the Reformers turned out to be persecutors also, actually persecutors of people that should have been their best friends. So I want to stop there, but before I do, I, 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 I've told you before that I did not want these lessons on church history to be a history of the Roman Catholic Church. And yet I find that that's extremely difficult because you have all of this intertwining that goes on down through the centuries. And so when I have to mention these things about Roman Catholicism, when I talk about the death and destruction, the persecutions, the torture, and and such things that Roman Catholics did during that time, I don't do that because I, I hate Roman Catholics. I mean, the one thing that we want more than anything is for Roman Catholics to come to the knowledge of the truth. More than anything, we want them to know who the real Savior is and to trust him as their Savior. So there aren't any real Christians like us as Baptists who ever pray for the destruction of Roman Catholics, but we do pray for the destruction of the Roman Catholic Church. We do pray for that because it's a false system. And what we will not do, we're not going to participate in the cover-up that says that there's something other than what they actually are. We want to tell the truth about that system. Now, uh, the Roman Catholic Church deserves nothing more, nothing less, than to be completely destroyed because it's the system of the Antichrist. And yet I know this, that I'm not able to do it. I know this, that the Roman Catholic Church is going to survive me, and it's going to survive you. And I know that because it's written in the pages of Scripture. And it's not written because they are a true church. It's written because these are people that are going to survive the rapture of Christ, and they're still going to be here. And then during the tribulation, they are going to become the church of the state once again. And so they're going to thrive in that aftermath. And with all of the glee that comes with the reunion of church and state, again, all of that is going to be turned in the morning because the Antichrist is going to use them, and then he's going to use them up, and then he will destroy them. And so they'll be destroyed by the system that they coveted. Constantinism is what brought them into power. A church-state government and the state is going to turn against them and they'll become, and the state will become its enemy. So what do we do? We warn them. We warn them. As I said, true Christians never hope for the destruction of Roman Catholics. We want Roman Catholics to be converted. And I'll tell you a very good reason why. Because I don't know of anybody that is more thankful for their salvation than a converted Roman Catholic. When they get saved out of that system, I mean, it's almost like every day they praise God that they're not blinded by that any longer. So we pray for the conversion of Roman Catholics. We don't hate them, but this is the history, and we have to tell the history. It intertwines with everything that we talk about Baptists because they're the enemies of the survival of people known as Baptists. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time that we've had together today. And these are some difficult things that we have to talk about. And I know that uh, if if I was preaching this on the street corner, it probably wouldn't last very long. Um, People would call that hate speech. People would call it lies or whatever they want to call it. But we have the history. We know what it says. We also know what the Word of God says. So, Lord, help us to preach the truth and help us to be thankful that we're not blinded by these evil systems of the world, but you have brought salvation to us through Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior. Bless our church. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Roanoke Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275. Or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Ronert Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.